Scary Home Companion is sponsored by Totally Tidy LLC. A female-owned business, Totally Tidy specializes in cleaning homes above the industry standard. They are raising the bar. Get clean with Totally Tidy. Currently looking for employees in southern Indiana. If you are in the area of Evansville and Newburgh, contact Totally Tidy today. T-O-T-Tidy at Hotmail.com and on Facebook as Totally Tidy LLC. It was a brisk and windy night on the streets of the sleepy, upscale Manhattan Enclave. The sky was clear. The night was quiet. There were no lights or decorations to be seen, so you might not know it was Halloween night at all. Except for behind the windows of one darkened storefront. What looked to be a bookstore with black, unlabeled glass and a reinforced steel door. Inside this place, it was always Halloween. A stretch limo pulled to a stop outside the store, and a man emerged. He carried a parcel under his arm, one wrapped in brown paper. He steadied himself with an ostentatious walking stick. Another man moved towards him up the sidewalk. He also wore a suit and tie, but the parcel that he carried was in a locked briefcase. You look lost, the man from the limo said. I might be. What do you have in the case, friend? Is it a book? Is it a haunted book? Then no, you're not lost. The man introduced himself as Lepton Sinclair a member in good standing of a very unique and exclusive book club, one that sought to unlock an ancient mystery, a biblio-enigma hidden in hundreds of unrelated books written across hundreds of years. Never before had the book club met on Halloween. But tonight was special. Tonight, they had been promised an appearance by a very special book. Some say it was the most cursed book ever written. Drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. Music, monsters, and mayhem. Killers, cannibals, and cults. Fearful fiction and furious fact. Tall tales and terrifying truths. This is A Scary Home Companion.
Before any new people were invited to one of these exclusive book club meetings, there were several prerequisites to be considered. Having money wasn't enough. Having a strong rep in the occult book community wasn't enough. You needed both of those things, of course, but you also needed passion. They were trying to unlock ancient secrets here. It was no place for noobs or dabblers, only for the truly committed. David Jefferson checked all the boxes. He was a very interesting prospect. But as they say, the proof is in the pudding. The core of this group was Avery, Lepton, Claudio, Julia, and Maria. And they always discussed any possible new pledges. But really, the decision always came down to Avery. He had the most money, the longest arms, the biggest collection. Although this building was for the collective to hold all the magnificent books and works they had collected, on paper, it belonged to Avery. It was an elegant, opulent reading room with recessed lighting, cases made of dense African blackwood, plush carpets, and sound baffling behind the paneled walls to make sure that voices never carried. As glorious and glamorous as it all was, and really, it was. The room was actually the vanity project of a self-important man. A glorified museum where all the best books were hidden under glass. You can see, but you can't read. Being his first time here, David Jefferson perused the selection as he would in any other library. Immediately, he saw a dozen different titles that made him yearn to pluck them off the shelf and crack the spine. But he resisted. He was being watched, and he knew this. He was a pledge, having yet to make his bones, and everyone was evaluating him. He needed to stay cool and not act like a ghastly fanboy. In the midst of all the display cases and book stacks, dead center of the back wall was a very curious door. It was made of the rarest maple with fine brass fittings. It was wider and taller than a normal door. There was a knob, but there was no lock. Avery was suddenly standing behind David, like a moth to the flame. That isn't the bathroom, I take it, David said lightly. Avery was polite enough to fake a laugh. David turned the knob out of pure curiosity and opened the ominous door to reveal a blank wall behind it. He closed the door, making sure that he heard it click, because he knew what he was looking at now. That's right, Avery smiled. A custom door made just for the archive. The patron saint of books, the boogeyman of librarians, the king 
of bibliophiles. They say the archive will visit any library worthy of his notice. And so you built him his own private door. Doesn't that seem a little arrogant? Well, it might be, if this collection wasn't so fucking fabulous. David, you know the difference between confidence and arrogance? It rests entirely on what you bring to the table. Here, we bring quite a bit to the table, sir. Perhaps you haven't seen the memoirs yet. Avery pointed to a display box lit up from beneath like the Ark of the Covenant. What is this? David said. He moved in close, so close his breath fogged up the plexiglass. The box that held the loose pages, handwritten diary entries on musty yellowed paper. Is this what I think it is? Indeed it is, David. The last remaining pieces of the memoirs of James Everett Fryatt, privateer. These memoirs contained the first known written account of someone who had actually seen the island the end of days and lived to tell that tale. It was only a few short paragraphs, rife with misspellings and illegible words, but its historical value could not be overstated. You have a keen eye, Avery said. He extended his hand for a limp shake. This was Claudio's find, and he was noble enough to donate it to the collection. Did I hear my name? Oh, you saw my memoirs. Claudio came sauntering over and stood uncomfortably close to Avery. I should say so, David said. He was entranced by the pages. I don't think we've been formally introduced. My name is Roger Avery Benoit, and this is my former associate, Claudio Rivera. Benoit, Claudio giggled. Is it Benoit or is it Benoit? You see, Mr. Jefferson, Mr. Benoit's father was a dirt-farming hillbilly who read at a third-grade level. Wasn't a third-grade? And he didn't know how to pronounce his own name. Ha-ha, yes. Very good, Claudio. Have a laugh. Do your best to humiliate me. It won't matter come midnight. What Mr. Benoit is trying to say, Mr. Jefferson, is that this, my find, my contribution to the group, is the crown jewel of the collection. Avery rolled his eyes. Yes, yes, everyone is duly impressed. I'm sorry, David, I don't mean to sound bitchy, but we were all blown away by Claudio's gracious donation once upon a time. So much so that we gave him a five-year waiver on all requirements. And since then, he hasn't presented a single new puzzle piece to the group. Not one. That was the arrangement, Claudio said. I know it was the arrangement. 
That's why you get to come in empty-handed. Again. I'm just saying that deal or no deal, if you're truly invested, if you really wanted to solve the puzzle like the rest of us, then you should bring something. Even if it's a bottle of wine or a charcuterie. I think Jew are still pissed that you've never found anything on this level, Avery. Avery gave a knowing smirk and checked his pocket watch. We'll see. Can I read them? David blurted out. I'm sorry, that's only for full members, Avery said. Let's see how the night goes. Someone called out to Avery, who drifted away. David took a step closer to Claudio. Excuse me, Mr. Rivera, I'm new. Jess, I know. What did he mean by puzzle piece? He said you got a five-year waiver for the puzzle piece? David. Your name is David, yes? Not Dave. Good. That's good. I like the David. I don't like the Dave. What we do here isn't really about books. It's about the bigger story behind the books. The books are the puzzle pieces. We call it the puzzle. Hundreds of books, over hundreds of years, written by people who never met one another, have no connection to one another. And yet, the art, the work, the writing, it's connected. The books are the pieces. And what we do is we seek to find them all. If we find all the pieces, we can read them and put them together the right way. And when we do that, the bigger picture will become clear. David said softly, the bigger picture, that's what it's all about. Good, so you've heard of the ghastly ones, the nightmare people. Their secret history runs through humanity like a dark thread. Little glimpses into the other side show up in writings and art, and this is what we collect. But not just to put on a shelf, to read it, to interact with it, to fully understand it. Standing at the head of a very long table, Avery cleared his throat. <clears throat> Ladies, gentlemen, it's time to begin. At this point, you've all met, but for the purpose of ceremony, allow me to introduce the newest probationary member of our group, David Jefferson. Hello, David. Since you're the low man on the totem pole, pardon my Francais, you do have to go first. What did you bring for us? 
David opened his case and withdrew a trade paperback called One People, Tales of a Renegade Anthropologist by Dr. Neil Wallace. It detailed his time with a lost tribe in South America. It had been famous for many years before the author killed his family and went on a murderous rampage. This is a first edition, signed by the author, with the note, Knock em Dead, which I feel is quite fitting. No one spoke. David looked around the room at a series of impassive faces. Avery spoke for everyone. Oh, please. That man spent years doing nothing but signing books before he went cuckoo bananas. Like, I get it. As a rookie-level piece, this is... fine. Frankly, I'm a little embarrassed for you that you brought it. Should we put David to a vote right now, friends? Before anyone could answer, David said, Okay, now I can see. You're serious. I wasn't sure. I was impressed by your collection. But although you vetted me to some degree, I didn't vet any of you. I didn't know what I was walking into tonight. I thought this might have been a joke. Now I can see this is no joke. What are you saying, David? That book was my red herring. If that was the sort of thing that impressed you, a vote wouldn't have been needed. I would have just walked out. No, I brought something else. Just in case. There was a secret compartment in the bottom of his case, from which he withdrew a thick, waterproof bag, unzipped it, and then gently took out a folded map. Do you have a map table? he asked. Are you kidding? Honey, of course we have a map table. Over there in the corner. Marble and ivory. Yes, ivory. I saw that look, Maria. Don't think I didn't see that look. David went to the map table and reverently unfolded the paper. All said and done, it was three feet by four feet, pushing the edges of the custom table. I assume you're all familiar with the cartographer, he asked. They say he was a savant. Maps, numbers, lines, angles. It was intuitive for him. The most gifted map maker who ever lived. He could spot irregularities a problem that eventually consumed him. Avery covered his mouth with his hands. He stood back as if too awestruck to move any closer. And this is one of his? This is an original? Oh, yes. I've had it tested by three independent experts. It's authentic. This map was made by the cartographer himself. It shows one of his irregularities. That's Death Valley, isn't it? Lepton asked. That's correct. This map is of a portion of western Nevada and into California. 
Look at those wavy lines, Claudio gasped. I've seen those before, in his map of the Devil's Triangle. David nodded. I've only seen pictures of it, never the original map in person. Have you seen it? Claudio shook his head. No, none of us have. Just pictures and reproductions. Immediately, the group took a poll, and David Jefferson was granted full status. He was now a member in good standing of the book club. When the hemming and hawing died down, it was time for the next presentation from Julia Baker. You're all familiar with Jenny Silver. She was a reporter from Florida who dug into the Devil's Triangle and then disappeared one day. This is a copy of her last book, The Crossing. Avery tapped his foot. And? We've all read this one. Have you read it, David? See, even David's read it. How many copies of this do we have already? Jenny says she saw the breach, but she could never back anything up. It's purely speculative. But you haven't read this version, Julia said smugly. She set the book down on the table and opened the cover. This is the first draft that Jenny Silver submitted to her publisher. This is the one where she names names. The lawyers made her change all the real names that she used to fake names. Chapter 12 is called The Truth Behind the Flayed Lady. And let me tell you, she takes Lila Ambrose to task. My dear, I rescind all previous sass. This is quite the find. Avery flipped through the pages. He hmmmed a couple of times. Wherever did you find it? There was a detective in Miami who died in that big hurricane. They found this in his apartment when they were going through his personal effects. I guess that cop used to date Jenny Silver, and she gave it to him. I still have a few friends in the Miami PD. Well, aren't you just full of smoky backroom surprises? He patted her hand. You will let me read it cover to cover, won't you? My lovely Maria, you're up next. Maria Berginella went to the head of the table and revealed a book that looked familiar at first. This is a rare copy of La Botaniste Profane by Gaston Ailier. It's an outlaw reprint from an Ottawa publisher in 1953. It only had a print run of 500. It features a series of illustrations that aren't in any other copy I've seen. I'm still researching the artist, but there doesn't seem to be a record of him. Oh, this is fun, Avery said. You found a copy that Harriet Ford didn't beat you to. I thought Harriet Ford was retired, David asked. It was well known in the occult book community that Dr. Harriet Ford was a cash cow when it came to this book. She was a fanatical collector of every copy of the profane botanist that she could get her hands on. And when one came up for auction, 
It didn't matter the language or the condition or the age. Harriet was going to walk away with it. Until she didn't. One day, she stopped hunting for copies of the book. You heard that story, didn't you? Avery said, obviously eager to tell tales out of school. Poor thing went mad as a March hare. She burned down a hospital, and they took her away. I heard something like that. It sounded... fanciful, David said. In light of all that... Maria interjected, pulling the spotlight firmly back on herself. You will find this interesting. Look here. And here. And this note inside the back cover. I had the handwriting analyzed. It matches Harriet Ford. This is one of her copies with her notes in it. I think... She was far more insane than anyone realized. Avery bowed. He kissed the back of Maria's hand. Lepton Sinclair went last. He leaned against his walking stick. It wasn't a cane, and he didn't need it. He just liked the affectation. Also, there was a panic button inside the gold-plated handle in case... He needed his men to come for him. This book is one you might have heard of, but quite certainly you have never read it before. Because it was never published. There were a dozen or so copies that were bound and covered to be distributed to the editing staff and the owners of the publishing house. The process never went any further. You see... This book is about the secret life of big-game hunter Perry Ambrose. Somehow his daughter Lila found out about it. She made a few calls, and after that the book was dead in the water. Interesting to note, the publishing house did purchase this book for a very high price. Just so they could own it, and make sure it was never released by them or anyone else. To my knowledge, this is the only copy of this book still in existence, and I present it as a gift for the collection. There was a smattering of applause. Lepton gave a soft bow. This is something truly special, Avery said, clapping Lepton on the back. I don't suppose you'll tell us how you got it, will you? Wait, wait, wait. Let me guess. The nature of your work precludes disclosing anything further. Did I get it right? (laughs) Ha ha! Quite right. Lepton fake chuckled. Avery, I believe that makes it your turn. Last but not least right, my friend? Avery checked his pocket watch. Right as the front door opened, it was precisely the stroke of midnight. An African-American man, late middle-aged with a salt-and-pepper beard, entered the room as if he'd been here before. He set a case on the table 
and unlocked it. As agreed, he said to Avery. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to introduce Private Detective Lester King. He has brought us a copy of the book that we've all been dying to read. An original, hand-written copy of The Ghastly Ones. Without meaning to do so, David stepped closer to the book. Everyone did. It was magnetic. They had to get closer, to see it, to touch it, to smell the musk of the pages. Lester King snapped his case open with authority, also snapping the heightened tension of the room. He took the book out of the case and unceremoniously dropped it on the table. This is an original manuscript of the untitled book widely known as The Ghastly Ones. It was written and illustrated by a man named Ira Dunwich during his incarceration in cell six on death row of the Slate County Correctional Facility. Avery asked, Do you have provenance? The detective stepped away from the table, looking a little nonplussed, as if he was running an errand that he felt was beneath him and was rapidly losing patience. Provenance. Hmm. Mr. Benoit, you know my reputation as well as you know my rate. I have personal, unassailable provenance of this book from its creation through this very moment. I can personally vouch for its authenticity. I can also tell you that any name I could drop in terms of verifying the ownership history of this book would violate my code of ethics. I remember their names just as well as I will remember yours once I leave this room. That is to say, not at all. Furthermore, solely for the sake of a dramatic presentation, I arrived at the stroke of midnight on Halloween per your request. I understand there should have been a clap of thunder when I entered the room, but some things are beyond even my control. You have what you asked for, and I will answer no more questions, sir. All I ask of you is my remuneration. Avery looked around the room and then snapped his fingers just to be a show-off. His personal assistant appeared out of a shadow. It was a tall, bulky man who wore an Armani suit with the bulge of a gun under one arm. The man nodded at Lester and then wordlessly led him into a back room, 
The group closed in around the head of the table. But no one reached out for the book, not even Avery, who leaned down very close to try and catch a whiff of its musty scent. It was a moment of true reverence. They had found their unholy grail, the centerpiece of the entire puzzle. A few moments later, Lester rejoined them. He had his eye on the front door, but stopped to address the group. Before I take my leave, there are a couple things I need to tell you, both professionally and personally. Professionally, I have been asked by the previous owners that all of you read this book. They understand the nature of your collective, and it was decided that in the interest of fairness, although Mr. Benoit did pay the bill, all of you need to read it. And this is not a suggestion. This is a stipulation. No one finds the book on accident. It cannot be purchased or traded without permission. In other words, folks, you have this book because you have been allowed to have it. The book needs fresh eyes, fresh minds, so that it can open up fresh ideas. If all of you do not read it, the previous owners will know, and they may want it back. Avery opened his mouth, but Lester hushed him with a raised palm. Let me finish. On a personal level, I would like to tell you what I know to be factual about this book. It is a key, and your brain is the lock. Once you read it, there will be no going back, ever. This book will infect your dreams. It will show you things. It might even take you places. But without one iota of doubt, reading it will change you. Whatever legends and lore you believe about the book, please know that they are a distant whisper of the truth, which is much deeper and much more profound than you could possibly know. I advise you, human being to human being, to not read this book. Turn now, leave, never come back. I understand that the what-might-have-beens will haunt you, but you need to understand that this book really will haunt you. And that is not a metaphor, nor is it hyperbole. It is my most sincere advice. Lester looked around the room and saw the expressions that he expected to see. Very well, then. I'll leave you to it. When the door was closed, the room once again silent, 
Avery asked. Does anyone want to turn, leave, and never come back? No one did. They all gathered around the head of the table, pushed in uncomfortably close. Avery put on his reading gloves and delicately opened the cover. They drank it all in, examining every page, every word and drawing and pictograph, slowly and with awe. The only words uttered were whispered to themselves. Everyone was lost in thought. Even though they were all crowded together, they were miles apart. They read of the ghastly ones and of the end of days. They went deeper into the tome, time spinning away from them, having lost all meaning until... All six of them looked up, towards the back of the room, towards that ridiculous door to nowhere. They saw the knob turning, the door slowly pushing open, letting in the shadows that crouched behind it. Thank you for listening to another episode of A Scary Home Companion. This episode was a bit of an Easter egg hunt. Did you find them all? The truths that these people are seeking are all right here in the show, hidden across dozens of different episodes. Find A Scary Home Companion on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or email us directly at a scary home companion at gmail.com. Better yet, sign up for the show's Patreon page. Early release dates, bonus episodes, and fun extras like post-mortem analysis videos. Watch the post-mortem for this episode, and I'll point out all the Easter eggs and references that you might have missed. Also, you get fun merch. In the future, we have a book coming out, and very soon we will make the Scary Home Companion game module available for patrons. Hang out to the end of the credits for a detailed look at that game. Come to Patreon. Join Andy, Catherine, Brett, and many, many others in supporting independent horror. The episode was produced and edited by David Jefferson. I, I mean, Jeff Davidson. It featured the music, Book of the Low Heartbeat by River of No, Black Book by Ori, Shadow Out of Time by River of Cult, The Shadow Weeps by Solar Flare, and Chelsea Oxendine with the theme music. 
The first game based on the world of a scary home companion is called Hoosier Horror. An abandoned asylum in the middle of Indiana is about to be torn down. A reporter wanted to find out what secrets the place held, specifically the history of a repugnant serial killer called Toe Cutter. That reporter disappeared. Now, it is up to you to retrace her footsteps and find out what happened. Hoosier Horror is a tabletop role-playing game that uses the Dread Tower system. There are no dice. There is no math. Instead, you use a Jenga tower. After creating your own unique ghost-chasing heroes, the storyteller will lead you through the game. Every choice that you make leads to pulling another block from that tower. The deeper you get into the asylum, the more precarious that tower gets, the more the tension builds. And if it collapses, you die. Playing from three to six players, including the storyteller, and lasting roughly three to five hours, Hoosier Horror is a one-night role-playing event, unlike one you have ever experienced. You can get a free copy through Patreon.